0: James Chapter One James Chapter One to wish Happy Father's Day to all of you. I hope you have a good day, perhaps with family. Just to give you a sense of Kind of the plan here, we're taking a a summer break from the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember, we had started James before we went to Matthew uh, around Christmas time, and then have been in Matthew ever since. And we've got some uh, various things going on this summer, a couple of baptisms uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks, and so there's going to be some one-off sermons in there as well. And uh, so we're going to pause from the Gospel of Matthew, we'll return to that in chapter 6. In the fall, that's the plan, Lord willing. And uh, we'll continue to press on in James as a bit of a summer uh, series. And we pick up where we left off at verse 16. Verse 16, verses 16 through 18. And we'll begin reading at verse 12, just to get a little bit of a refreshing of uh, the context here in James. So James 1, verse 12 This is God's holy word. He gives it to us as people for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth. Through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. find my sermon there for a minute. Let us balance more for prayer. So great God, as we come before Your Word, what do we know not teach us; what do we have not give us; what we are not make us, for Your Son's sake. Amen. It is a bit of a an assumption, or perhaps a, a mindset of this age, that perhaps the the greatest question or the most searing question that, that one could pose to a Christian or someone who's seeking to live biblically is, how can you believe God is good with all the evil and suffering in the world? A very common, challenging question. Maybe you see it uh, posed in debates or in other contexts. And I- indeed, if you begin with the assumptions of our age, the kind of mindset that probably your average person has that tends to make man or or the individual or the the sense inside the individual yearning for freedom, uh, the measure of all things. I'm I'm the master of my faith, the captain of my soul. No one can tell me what is right or wrong, and I have my truth and my own pursuit of the good. Indeed, if you were to start with those assumptions, then perhaps this question might be unanswerable. But when we begin with the assumption of Scripture, when we begin with the categories of the Bible, when we begin with the doctrine of who God is, and we uh, believe that we need to order our own lives under all of those things, then the question you would begin with is much different. The question you would begin with would sound like this. Since God is good... How are we to understand the suffering of the world? You see, it's a fundamentally different place to begin. You say, since you are informed and shaped according to Scripture, you say, since God is good, because we know that He is good and His Word tells us so, and He never changes, He will always be good. Since all of those things are true, how are we to understand suffering and trials, the vast manifestations of evil, in the world. Well, the, the ideas that we're going to think about this morning as they come f- to us from James chapter 1 are these. First, uh, in, in seeking to understand evil and suffering and trials while affirming God's goodness, is first, remember that God only gives good gifts. Remember that He only gives good gifts. Secondly, recognize His goodness in every gift. And then lastly, realize he's already given the best gift. So first, remember that he only gives good gifts. Second, recognize his goodness in every gift. Third, realize he has already given the best gift. First, remember. Remember that God only gives good gifts. Our passage begins with a command. Do not be deceived do not be tricked do not fall under this kind of deception and then affirm something for us that god is the giver of all good gifts now some people believe that in james 1 what you have is is a, a bunch of snippets of wisdom kind of thrown together and that is certainly not true the the reigning context of james 1 is very clearly suffering and trials that god's people are experiencing at the time of james writing And certainly will always be experiencing in this age. And so we are to count it all joy when we are faced with various trials. We are to withstand temptation in the midst of trials. We are to to see the way in which God is working to help us endure in the midst of trials. And we are to see and believe and affirm both God's sovereignty and his goodness in the midst of our trials. God's goodness cannot be questioned by his people even in the midst of difficult times. We cannot point to our temptations. We cannot point to our sin and say God is at fault. Of course, we come up against these questions when we affirm God's sovereignty. God is in control of all things, right? Not one atom in this universe moves outside of his declared will. And so if God is sovereign, to what extent do we attribute to him the fault for the evil and suffering? Well, we don't at all. God is not the author of sin, and God is not to be blamed for any of the evil in this world. God does not tempt us to sin, and thus we cannot look at our sin and then point the finger back to God. Although all things happen under God's care and design, it does not mean that he is the one who is responsible for anything sinful or evil, or wicked in the world. God is sovereign, and yet human beings are responsible agents. This is impossible to accept if you believe that, that God and humans kind of exist on the same playing field. You're always going to be playing the game of, well, God is, God is 90% in control, and human beings are 10% uh, have their own freedom and ability to exercise the will. No, the two things are not in conflict at all. God is transcendent. He is unlike us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. There is a distinction between creator and creature. And when we begin with those assumptions, we can say God is absolutely sovereign over his creation. And at the same time, it does not mean that human beings are robots. It does not mean that human beings are not responsible. They are. One reforms Confession puts it this way, God from all eternity did freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. All things ordained by God. And it goes on to say this, Yet neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. There's mystery in this, but we affirm it because it's so clear in the Bible. So James' strategy is to inform us, to teach us about who God is, that we might fill our minds with the proper thoughts of God that are like unto the the way that he is and his character and his attributes. If if we don't want to be deceived, if we don't want to fall under deception, if we don't want to be tricked into thinking something about God, because what really is the context there as we, we move into our passage, as James continues to recount all of these things that you're going to experience Trials, temptation, uh, the the temptation to give up in the midst and to not endure in the midst of your challenges and trials. You're going to be tempted to say, well, God is at fault, or God is not good, or I can't really trust him anymore. Has he changed? Do not fall under those kinds of deceptions. And in order to do that, James fills us with uh, thoughts, the proper thoughts of God. The basic affirmation of the passage is this, God is good. And he never changes. And thus he will always be good. And he always acts in perfect accordance with his character. So all that he does and all that he wills for us is good. You say that God never changes. This is what theologians call the immutability of God. He is not mutable. He does not change. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, therefore I do not change. Psalm 102 A great hymn of praise to God, reflecting on this very truth. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This is a great verse to mention, almost an Old Testament twin of James 1, 16 through 18, where God is called the Father of heavenly lights. James calls us to look up into the heavens and to notice something about the heavenly bodies. What are they doing? They are always moving. They are always in motion. That's why shadows uh, change, even from one moment to the next. And there's a great contrast there as it relates to God. God created these heavenly bodies. They are always moving, but God never changes. And yet, if we think about that a little bit more deeply we understand that the heavenly bodies are perhaps some of the most predictable things in our earthly experience. We know when the sun will rise and set each day. We can predict it right to the minute. We can chart its course. And so, yes, the heavenly bodies are always in motion, but we are in motion and in flux much more than they are. We cannot even predict when we might wake up the next morning. We might convince ourselves that we need 10 more minutes of sleep. We might convince ourselves that it'll be okay if we arrive a little bit late at the thing we have during the morning. This is especially true for parents of young children. For much of the time when we wake up in the morning, that's dependent on what the child has done the previous night, which is even less predictable than the sleeping patterns of the adults but if the child has not really had a very good night's sleep, then of course the parents are going to rationalize and say, well, I mean just, I'm going to sleep till nine today because I was up till four. And when you put the baby down, you don't know. Is the baby going to start crying in five minutes or is the baby going to start crying in five hours? There's no way of knowing. I'm not bitter about this. I'm just saying. <laughs> this is what James is calling us to believe, that God is good and that all that he does is good. He will never and indeed can never change. The basic response to all of this, what is our response to the unchangeableness of God? Is that we trust him, that he is good and he never changes. He is our father, so we trust him in all things. And this is indeed where Psalm 102 ends up going. Right after the, verse that we, the verses that we read, you are the same, your years have no end. The next verse says this, the children of your servants shall dwell secure their offspring shall be established before you. In other words, those whom you count as your own, O God, they will be safe. Those for whom you are acting for their good, they will always have this advantage and they will dwell secure. So remember that God only gives good gifts. We cannot be deceived into thinking, well, maybe there is some change in God. Maybe his goodness has veered off the path slightly for whatever reason. No, James calls us to remember that he only is the giver of good gifts. And then we are to recognize, secondly, we are to recognize his goodness in every gift. If we affirm God's sovereignty if we affirm that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, then we must recognize his goodness in every gift and understand it, how often we forget. And when we forget, we forget to give him praise because of it. Now, I'm thinking here as we'll we'll walk through various things. The first thing we need to remember is to thank him for all of those things that we enjoy each day for which we forget to thank him. Psalm 104 says this, O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. Psalm 104 is saying the creatures, animals, naturally depend on God day by day and even moment by moment, calling us to do the same as it fills our minds and our hearts with this truth that God has created all things and he gives out of the goodness that is within him. We fail to understand, don't we, on a day-to-day basis, we fail to understand and to recognize that it was God who woke us up this morning. We fail to understand so often that he gives us the air that we breathe. He gives us the sun and its warmth. He gives us the food that is set before us. It is the basic posture of the fool to not acknowledge these things and to not acknowledge God's hand in all of these things. Romans 1, they did not acknowledge him as God and they did not give thanks. It is the basic posture of a child of God to recognize his hand in all things and thus to render him thanks. I think I shared a prayer from Anthony Burgess with us a couple weeks ago. It says this, your overflowing goodness overcomes me. If only I had the hearts of all men and angels to praise you. When we rightly look and understand the the enormity of God's goodness and all that he gives to us, what do we do? We cannot help but overflow in thankfulness and praise and adoration towards him. And so Burgess says, if only I had more hearts to render praise unto you. If only I had the hearts of all men and all angels to worship you. We recognize his sovereignty in all things, and when we do, we see that he is to be praised for all that he gives. And to stay in that posture of thankfulness, thank you, thank you, thank you, that is the posture of a child of God. We also recognize that what he gives to us, all things are in accord with his good will for us, and all things are meant to advance us in the path to heavenly glory, So, we describe them as good and perfect. That's what James says in our passage. He's the giver of things that are gifts that are good and perfect. Here, I want us to think about these things we might describe as mixed blessings. Someone might say, Well, my job provides for my needs, but I don't enjoy it. It's a mixed blessing. Now, of course, there may be a sense in which it's legitimate to think that a different job could be better. Career change might be a good idea. It might be legitimate to seek another job or another living situation. But, but the idea is that we don't look at our present circumstances and, and look at the way that they are not changing according to our desires and uh, not see that still even behind those things is God's goodness. If you have a job for that day, even if you don't enjoy it, it is God's perfect will for your life that you go and work unto the Lord. It's probably more important to think about this relationally and need to be challenged to think about this. In something like marriage, we can be tempted to think that our spouse is both a blessing and a curse. At certain times, he or she is a great encouragement. At other times, a great discouragement. But when we realize that all of the relational difficulties that we experience have God's sovereignty behind them, that they are for our good, then we begin to describe them as both good and perfect because God is using them to do something in us. A husband or a wife might say, I was so patient before I became married. No, you weren't. Your marriage has exposed that you are actually not patient or not forgiving or any number of things. But there is an opportunity to bring it to the Lord. And to understand the way that he is chipping away at what he needs to chip away in your life. To wait on his grace. All that he gives is good and perfect. Even if we would tend to describe it as a mixed blessing, he has brought it there to refine you. But then a final consideration. We train ourselves to constantly thank God for the good things that he gives to us that we often forget. We see his goodness and perfect will in those things we call mixed blessings. But then when we proceed from these things, these assumptions that we find in James 1, God is good and he never changes, is the giver of good gifts to his children, then that means that even those things that we despise, trials and sufferings, those things which tempt us to question the goodness of God, it is even through and within these things that we will see God's perfect goodness towards his children. To give an imperfect human example, a child who truly struggles with something like mathematics and and despises it, and perhaps cannot understand why his parents repeatedly force him to sit down and painstakingly work through each problem night after night. Now, to the parent, it is utterly obvious why you would do this. It is almost unquestioned that this is what you need to do for the good of this child but to the child who has not learned enough to see the end result. Something like this seems meaningless and almost cruel. Something very similar holds for our suffering, doesn't it? God sees what we cannot see. God knows what we do not know. And he desires to shape us in and through all of those things over which he, he has control So for those who are the children of God, for those who are part of the family, seeking to serve God in Christ and walk faithfully in joy and submission, even those things which bring us pain and confusion and anguish, even these things are good because God will use them for His glory and for our good. Wilhelmus Brockles says this, Believers, be comforted by the immutability of the Lord. For all the promises of which you are heirs will most certainly be fulfilled. Not one of them will fall upon the earth or be disannulled. Even though the circumstances appear to be so strange and contrary to them. And in your opinion, the fulfillment of the promises is postponed much longer than ought to be the case. Do your circumstances seem strange when laid against the promises of God? He has promised to be a good father, but he seems in the moment not to be. Believe that his promises must be fulfilled. Why? He does not change. Is relief or redemption taking longer than you'd like? Understand that God is doing it to make his glory known. And if he makes his glory known in and through you, what a wonderful privilege. As you all know, I'm a big fan of John Newton and his approach to reform spirituality. Here's here's something that he says in a letter to a man whose wife was dying. Newton says this, I see you in the furnace, but the Lord is sitting by it as a refiner of silver. To moderate the fire and manage the process, So that you shall lose nothing but dross and be brought forth refined as gold to praise his name. And then he says this, what he does, that is God, what he does, however painful to the flesh, must be right because he does it. Whatever he does, however painful to the flesh, must be right because he does it. You begin with the categories of scripture. Those are the things you come away saying, it must be right, because God does it. What is the result of these things? As you affirm God's sovereignty, as you affirm God's goodness, and hold to it in all things, two things, at least, are the result. The first is reliance. We rely upon him as we understand that all things come from his hand. As we have this posture of thankfulness in all things, we rely upon him in all things. And secondly, as we rely upon him, we humbly submit to his will in all things. Because he knows better than we do what we need. He knows what we all need in order to get us to that great and glorious day of Jesus Christ. He knows how he is going to get us there. John Newton says that we rely upon him, that he will provide for us, guide us, protect us, be our help in trouble, our shield in danger, so that no matter how poor or weak or defenseless we may be or we may seem to ourselves, we will rejoice to say that God is our all-sufficiency. What does God want? He wants us from our hearts to express our reliance upon him, our trust in him. He goes on to say this, and here is just a wonderful way to capture it. Surely in a world like this, where everything is uncertain, where we are exposed to trials on every hand, and know not but a single hour may bring forth something painful, yea dreadful, there can be no blessedness, but so far as we are thus enabled to entrust and resign all to the direction and faithfulness of the Lord Our shepherd. It's the the mystery to the rest of the world that there is nothing greater, nothing more blessed than for us to say when something comes our way that is confusing, that is painful, that is even dreadful, that there is no blessedness like our ability to say, We rely upon God in the midst of these things. Spurgeon said it with fewer words, perhaps more. Uh, searing logic when he said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Well, then as we close, realize God has already given the greatest gift. Verse 18 unfolds this for us. James roots all of this in the fact that God has already given to us the greatest gift and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. Hanging over these intense questions of pain and suffering is the certainty of the gospel. God has promised all who believe in Christ eternal life and eternal blessedness away from the curse of death, above the curse of sin and death. There is no greater blessedness than that. And that is why in verse 18, James brings our attention to the new birth. He brought us forth by the word of truth which is a clear reference to the gospel. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What is the hope that we have? An inheritance. And what is that inheritance? To possess God forever. To be in communion and fellowship with him forever. To have that as a guarantee in Christ is the answer that must be sufficient in the midst of every trial, every pain, every ounce of suffering. That as we look to the uncertainty of the world, the uncertainty of the age, as we look to the certainty of the sufferings of God's people, we say, God has already provided for us the greatest gift, the greatest blessedness that we could ever know, because He has changed us from death to life, and he has made us alive together with Christ, and he has seated us in the heavenly places, and he has guaranteed for us a heavenly inheritance, an eternal life, together with him, that will never be taken away. It is imperishable. We will possess God forever in Jesus Christ. We will behold our Savior, a blessedness that will be greater than anything we could ever imagine. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, and the sun forbear to shine, but God who calls me here below shall be... Forever mine. God has done this according to his sovereignty. He has brought us forth by the word of truth. Why did you believe? It wasn't because you were so smart and understood that the gospel was real and true. God has brought you forth by the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He has breathed life into your dead and sinful soul. And He has done it. He will do it. and He will continue to refine you unto the last day. What he has given to us in the gospel is sufficient. It was Augustine who said, When God had given the Son and he had given the Spirit, there was truly nothing left for him to give. Why? Because the hope that we have in Christ and the way that the Spirit brings that hope into our hearts supernaturally, the believer has already been furnished with all that he or she needs in for any and every situation that the good and sovereign Father allows to come our ways. He's already furnished us with enough. He has given the Son. He has given the Spirit. When he had given those two, there was nothing left for him to give. So thank you. We say thank you, O Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit to the work on earth is done. Let's pray. Father, we give you all praise and thanks and adoration. We ask that you will build us up in these words, that we would know that you are good and that you never change, that we would not be deceived, not fall into temptation to questioning your goodness even when trials come our way, that we would be thankful in all things each and every day and see your goodness, that we would look towards mixed blessings and understand that you are perfectly conforming us to the image of Christ in and through them that we would look to our trials and our sufferings and even through the deep anguish and pain, understand that you will be glorified in and through them and that we would cling closely to your sovereignty even in the toughest of times and understand that you have already furnished us with all that we need, giving us Christ and through him giving us the Spirit. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The other side of your inserts, there is a redeemer. Let's stand together and sing.